This is a presentation from Narara Valley Baptist Church, a church that's desperate for God and passionate for people. Christmas. Who loves Christmas? <laughs> that was quick, Georgia. Um, Christmas. What do, you, what do you love about Christmas? Why is this season so exciting? Uh, what is going on for you at this time of year? Um, this is week one, as Travis said, of our Christmas preaching series. Uh, and I get the honor of preaching week one, morning one. Uh, I'm, I'm also preaching PM's first Christmas message next week. Uh, so how good's that? Um, if you are in a connect group, which you should all be, um, if you're in a connect group, you might have done a Christmas quiz this week. I was speaking with someone earlier uh, who said they got seven out of whatever it's out of. I think it's out of ten. Seven out of ten. Does anyone, anyone do better than seven out of ten in their Christmas quiz? If you don't know what I'm talking about, um, you can probably do the quiz solo if you just go to our Bible studies page on our website. Um, it should be there for you to see how many you can get true or false questions about Christmas. Um, but anyway, the thing we wanted to focus on about Christmas this year uh, was just the word hope. Uh, a lot of Christmas is about hope, and, and there's kind of, in the when you read the Bible's account of the Christmas event, uh, here in Luke we're reading this morning, you can also read it in Matthew, uh, there's this real sense of kind of two types of hope going on simultaneously. Uh, one is that the coming of Jesus, the birth of Jesus is the culmination of thousands of years of hope. Israel... Uh, God's people have been hoping for a saviour to come. And he's here. And they celebrate. And it's exciting. And, the, you know, the shepherds in the field see the angels celebrating. Uh, and the wise men come from miles away in celebration of the, the culmination of this hope. But also, a whole lot of things are said about this baby saying, when this baby grows up, these are the things that he is going to do. And so there's also a kind of forward-looking hope, not a, not a hope fulfilled, uh, but a hope prepared, a hope that he will do all the things that are promised about him. So this morning, uh, we're going to start where Luke starts his Christmas story, in Luke chapter 1. And Luke does something funny here uh, that Matthew doesn't do and that Mark doesn't do and that John doesn't do. Uh, Luke goes a little bit further back to give a little bit more backstory. Uh, when you start reading the Gospel of Luke, uh, you start in verse 1 and he does this little introduction about how, you know, I'm drawing up an orderly account of all the things that happened. I've speak, spoken to the eyewitnesses and I've put it all together for you most excellent Theophilus, so that you may know with certainty the things that you have been taught, and we expect him to then jump in and introduce the main character of his story, Jesus. A little bit of Bible trivia for you. Uh, the name Jesus does not appear until verse 31 
He really takes his time. And this story sits in between. Uh, in between the intro to the gospel and the intro of Jesus arriving on the gospel, uh, we get this amazing story we're going to look at this morning about this guy, Zechariah. So let's start reading. Here we go. We're going to kind of do it in chunks. I like to do chunks. We're going to read verses 5 to 10 first. It's on the screen. Or you can grab a Bible and read it yourself. In the time of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah who belonged to the priestly division of Abijah. His wife Elizabeth was also a descendant of Aaron. Both of them were righteous in the sight of God, observing all the Lord's commands and decrees blamelessly. But they were childless, because Elizabeth was not able to conceive, and they were both very old. Once when Zechariah's division, oh hang on, yep, once when Zechariah's division was on duty and he was serving as priest before God, he was chosen by lot according to the custom of the priesthood to go into the temple of the Lord and burn incense. And when the time for the burning of incense came, all the assembled worshippers were praying outside. So that's the setup. We've got these two characters introduced to us by Luke. Neither of them are Jesus. They're not even Jesus' parents. These are just two seemingly random people who are living their ordinary lives. But they're doing a good job of it. They are described as being righteous in the sight of God. They're described as being blameless in observing the Lord's commands and decrees. They're good, good, faithful people. But they are childless and both very old. So here we have two ordinary people living good lives, living faithful lives. Uh, I would say that they are alongside all the rest of the nation of Israel who are faithful, who are righteous, who are blameless, they are people living in hope, hoping that they are saved, hoping that God sends the promised saviour, whose story we're expecting to be reading. The expectation is there. Let's read on. Next chunk, 11 to 17. So you remember? Zechariah's in the temple. It's his turn to go and light the incense candle inside the temple. Everyone else is outside worshipping, and he goes into God's presence. See what happens. Then an angel of the Lord appeared to him, standing at the right side of the altar of incense. When Zechariah saw him, he was startled and gripped with fear. But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zechariah. Your prayer has been heard. Your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you are to call him John. He will be a joy and delight to you, and many will rejoice because of his birth, for he will be great in the sight of the Lord. He is never to take wine or other fermented drink, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit before he is born. He will bring back many of the people of Israel to the Lord their God. And he will go on before the Lord in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the parents to their children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the righteous to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. 
This is Zechariah's God moment. God has answered their prayers. This is good news, isn't it? Good news for Zechariah and for Elizabeth. I don't know about you. I don't know all of your stories. It was great to hear Brad's story this morning, wasn't it? Uh, And to hear about his God moments. Uh, Sometimes when you follow God, uh, you have these moments, these encounters with God that kind of become these little mountaintops, these little peaks uh, in, in the general to and fro of living a life with God. Uh, these stories that you can tell for the rest of your life about this moment where God did something amazing in your life. Uh, I've had God moments. I've had God moments at church. You kind of expect that. I've had God moments at like a Christian camp, but I've also had God moments on my own, God moments off, off at the beach, uh, or God moments with just one friend. I can think of a couple of God moments I've had sitting in a parked car in the middle of the night, being dropped off at home, and then kind of you get into a conversation, and you're like, we'll just finish this conversation before we go into the house, uh, and you, you have these moments with God. I thought I could tell one, this morning, but I couldn't pick one. And I felt like if I pick one, it's going to become normative. It's going to be something that you think your God moment should look like because that was my God moment. So I'm not going to give you any stories this morning, I'm sorry. Um, I want you to think of your own stories. If you really want stories, think of Brad's stories. Um, These are moments that are ecstatic, where you're just in awe of God and what he is doing, or just who he is. Maybe these are moments that are really encouraging. I mean that quite literally. They give you courage to do something that you wouldn't normally have the courage to do. Or maybe this is just a moment of relief, of going, God, finally, you've answered that prayer that I've prayed and prayed and prayed and prayed and almost given up hoping that you would answer and... God came through for me. Maybe it's a moment of joy, a moment of peace. Maybe it's a moment that energizes you and gets you going and gets you moving and gets you doing things. When we encounter God, these moments build our faith and our hope. And so I imagine Zechariah, he's gone into the temple. It's his turn to go in there. He's probably been before. It's his turn to go in and light the incense. He goes in there with his his little candle to go and light the special altar candle that burns the incense. And this angel shows up and he has his God encounter, his God moment. It's incredible. I've never had a God moment as amazing as that. I've never seen an angel and had a whole conversation. He would have been blown away, wouldn't he? This would have changed his life. Let's see. Let's see how he responds. You ready? Zechariah asked the angel, how can I be sure of this? I am an old man and my wife is, oh, no, uh, my wife is well along in years. Good euphemism. Good save, Zechariah. Uh, The angel said to him, I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God and I have been sent to speak to you and tell you this good news. And now you will be silent 
and not able to speak until the day this happens because you did not believe my words, which will come true at their appointed time. Meanwhile, the people were waiting for Zechariah and wondering why he stayed so long in the temple. When he came out, he could not speak to them. They realized he had seen a vision in the temple, for he kept making signs to them, but remained unable to speak. What's going on here? Zechariah doesn't believe, or at least not fully, not just yet. He's not sure. He says, how can I be sure of this? And we're not really sure the nature of his unsureness. I've used the word sure too much, haven't I? If, if, is he unsure that the angel might not be trustworthy, might be lying to him? Maybe he can't trust this, this angel in some way. Maybe he's unsure if God can really do this. Can he really have a child? And can Elizabeth have a child in their old age? Surely that's impossible. Maybe he's unsure if any of this is even happening. Maybe he's having a hallucination. Maybe this isn't even God. This isn't even real. He's just imagining the whole thing. Maybe there's not enough oxygen in there with all the incense burning. And so, in response, the angel gives him a sign. He is made silent, unable to speak for the next... I don't know, nine months, 10, 11, 12 months, not sure exactly. In a sense, when you read this, you're like, this sounds like a punishment, and it sounds like a harsh one. Like, he just asked a question, right? Why has he been made silent for a year? But I think calling it a punishment is kind of putting it a little more strongly than Luke does, or than the angel does for that matter. It is unfortunate, and it is perhaps humbling, and perhaps that's the intention. Yet, it's good. It reinforces his faith, and it reinforces his testimony to everyone else. When he comes out and says, I've seen an angel, and this is what the angel said, they're all going to think, yeah, did you really, though? Are you sure? But if he comes out unable to speak, then they're going to believe him. So it reinforces his faith and everyone else's. And I think also perhaps it brings him closer to God. I like to imagine, not that Luke tells us this, but I like to imagine that Zechariah has a year-ish from this point onwards of not being able to speak where he can just listen to God for a year where he can reflect and digest this God moment for a whole year. Every time he opens his mouth to say, can you pass the salt, and can't do it, it reminds him again, I had that God moment. God is up to something. God is doing something incredible. There is a moment, which I'm not going to spoil, but you can turn the page if you want. Uh, There is a moment coming up Uh, towards the end of this chapter where Luke gives us the second half of the story and he finally speaks again. And the moment he finally speaks uh, is 
the moment when he names his child, which was the very thing he was told he should do. All he had to do was name his child John. That was it. And when the moment comes to do that thing, when he opens his mouth, the words come out. Anyway, we'll, we'll, we'll talk about that in a couple of weeks. For you, I wonder if you've had these kinds of experiences where a God moment sits alongside a time of hardship in your life. For Zechariah, the God moment preceded the time of hardship. At other times, the time of hardship precedes the God moment. But often, if you kind of think about the story of your life, these two things can sit really near each other, really side by side. And I think sometimes we just want all of the God moments, all the mountaintops, none of the valleys. And God has a way of weaving a story in such a way that they go together, they're paired up. And so if you're hungry for a God moment this morning and you think, why don't I get a God moment? Why does everyone else get one and I don't get one? All I get is the hardship. I have a feeling, I can't promise you anything, but I have a feeling that there is a God moment to come with your time of hardship. I don't know what it is, but God does. Anyway, we need, we need to finish the story. I've left us hanging. There's three more verses. When his time of service was completed, he returned home. After this, his wife Elizabeth became pregnant and for five months remained in seclusion. The Lord has done this for me, she said. In these days, he has shown his favor and taken away my disgrace among the people. Elizabeth believes. There's, there's the word of faith. Zechariah's response was, how can I be sure of this? Elizabeth's response was, the Lord has done this for me. In these days, he has shown his favor and taken away my disgrace among the people. Um, that concept of her disgrace among the people, um, hopefully is a somewhat foreign concept to us, I hope. Um, certainly, there was a cultural expectation in the culture at the time uh, that childlessness was a punishment from God. It was something to be ashamed of. It was something that people would look down on you for. We don't know why Elizabeth was unable to have children. And we often don't know why we suffer trials and disappointments in life. What we do know is that it, they, they were wrong. The culture at the time was wrong to say that this was a punishment from God. It wasn't then and it isn't now. She did nothing wrong and she suffered her disgrace. It's not fair. But in this moment, when she finally conceives and when she hears the promise, not hears, because Zechariah can't talk, 
but interprets his signs. Maybe he wrote it down for her. She responds. She responds with joy and delight. That was what the angel promised, wasn't it? Joy and delight. Except I have an issue with this phrase. The Lord has done this for me, she says. And I say, Elizabeth, it's not about you. We're reading the story of Jesus. We're reading Luke's account of everything that Jesus said and did, of how he came to save us all, to save the world, to die on a cross and rise again. This is a big, big, big story, and it's not your story. He didn't do it for you. It's not about you, Elizabeth. And yet, there's also this little phrase from the angel earlier on where he does say, I've been sent to speak to you and tell you this good news. He says that this child will be a joy and a delight for you. When we encounter God, it is good to delight in that moment, to enjoy what God is doing, to enjoy God. It is good to enjoy God. I think sometimes we think God is a serious thing and following God is a serious business and it shouldn't be fun. But it should. It is right to enjoy what God is doing and to say, God, thank you for blessing me. But it doesn't end there, does it? Because that's not the whole sentence. It says, he'll be a joy and a delight for you and many will rejoice because of his birth. Elizabeth and Zechariah's joy was a joy to be shared with their friends, with their family. And I encourage you that when you encounter God and you enjoy God, share your joy with others. And even so, it doesn't end there either. It says, he will bring, he being the baby, John, he will bring back many of the people of Israel to the Lord their God. God does this amazing thing, and he does it again and again and again. You read the whole Bible, and you will see this thing happen again and again and again. God's grace is incredible, because it works on multiple levels simultaneously. The grace that was given to Elizabeth and Zechariah was the grace that they could have a child when they thought they weren't going to have a child. When they'd prayed and prayed that God would give them a child, he answered their prayer. And they rejoice in it, and their friends and families rejoice in it. A baby's going to be born, how awesome is this? It was something that God was doing in the world, but it had an effect for these ordinary people. A small moment of grace amongst ordinary people was a big move of grace that was going to change the world. And it isn't one or the other. God somehow works on both levels simultaneously, and he loves to do things this way. So it makes me reflect on those God moments in my life, and hopefully you can reflect on the ones I got you to think about before too. 
the question of your own God moments. How do those moments, those moments of little grace amongst us ordinary people, how do those things overflow into things that change the world? It's a hard question to kind of nail down an answer to. In my own life, I don't know exactly what that overflow could be. Maybe you don't know either. But it's worth looking for. And it's worth praying for. I think that there's an issue that when we think it's about us, when we only think it's about us, when we say, oh, God is blessing me, God is doing this amazing thing for me in my life, and I'm enjoying that, and this is awesome, we need to remember that it isn't just for you to enjoy. God has a bigger plan. In this moment, in Zechariah and Elizabeth's life, God was putting the pieces in place that this baby who they were going to call John, would grow up to be the man who would baptize people in the Jordan River and preach a message of repentance so that God's people would be ready to then receive the coming of their Savior, Jesus. So there's a lot of steps there. That, that, that the moment of joy of conceiving a baby is a long way removed from the big, picture thing that Jesus is going to do, dying on the cross, rising again. And yet, there is a connection there, a connection to be prayed into and leaned into. God's bigger plan, his big purposes. God is still at work in our world doing big things. He wants to reach people's hearts. He wants to change people's lives. He wants to bring the kingdom of God to bear on our world, bringing peace and bringing justice, bringing faith and bringing hope. And God is doing these big things and the small things. God is the God of small and big simultaneously. A faith that revolves around the small individual things is a small faith. Can I put it that way? A big faith looks for the big things that God is doing in the world. So, as the band comes up, thank you band, I ask you, have you experienced a God moment? Have you experienced the grace and the love of God at work in your life? If the answer to that is yes, then rejoice, enjoy it. It is for you to enjoy. And then share the joy. Let it flow out to others in your circle, in your life, to share in your joy with you. Share it with us, like Brad did this morning. But look out. Look out for what God is doing in the world. That the overflow of God's grace in your life that is not just for you to enjoy and is not just about you, but about God's plans for the world. 
Can I pray into that for us? Let's do that. Lord God, we give you thanks, we give you praise, we celebrate that you are a God who loves us, that you are a God who loves to give good gifts to his children, that you want us to enjoy those things, you want us to thank you for them, you want us to, in, to rejoice in your love for us. Lord, we thank you that you are a God who gives these little gifts of grace to us ordinary people. Lord, we don't feel like we're world changers. We don't feel like we're the main character in the story of the world. And yet, you bless us. You give us these good things. And God, as we give you thanks for them and as we rejoice in them, we want to pray into that, Lord, that you would be doing the big story work at the same time as you do the small story. Lord, that you would be bringing your kingdom Lord, that you'll be blessing the world. And Lord, that we can see that and, and experience that and play some small part in that big story. Lord, that is an honor and a privilege. Uh, and it makes us rejoice doubly to see you move in the world around us, even as you bless us in our ordinary lives. Lord, I pray that uh, you would give us a big faith, a big faith that is focused not just on ourselves and on getting good things from you, but is focused on you and your big story and the things that you love, the things that you are doing to bring your kingdom in this world. In Jesus' name, amen. This has been a presentation from Narara Valley Baptist Church, a church that's desperate for God and passionate for people. To continue the conversation, we invite you to join us Sundays at 9.30am and 5pm or on our website at www.nvbc.info.